0: This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America. Ethylene glycol is a colorless and odorless compound with a sweet taste commonly found in antifreeze. Ingesting a sufficient quantity of it can lead to fluid accumulation in the lungs, organ damage, seizures, and ultimately death. The effects of this poison typically manifest within 1 to 12 hours after ingestion, initially impacting the gastrointestinal tract and central nervous system. Within 12 to 24 hours, ethylene glycol starts affecting the heart and lungs while toxic calcium oxalate crystals begin to form. After 24 hours or more, the metabolized poison takes its toll on the kidneys, and death becomes possible at any stage. This type of poisoning results in a slow and agonizing demise, yet it often remains imperceptible. One particularly troubling aspect is that antifreeze poisoning does not readily show up on standard toxicology tests. Subsequently, if a death doesn't appear suspicious, the presence of antifreeze poisoning may go undetected. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead. Welcome to episode 87 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award winning true crime podcast. Lynn Turner was born in Marietta, Georgia on July 16, 1968. Following her birth, her biological mother made the difficult decision to put her up for adoption, leading her into the loving arms of the Womack family. Lynn's early childhood was marked by the separation of her adoptive parents when she was just five years old. Subsequently, her adoptive mother, Helen, was granted custody of the young girl. Helen eventually found love again with a man named D.L. Gregory, and they built a home together in Cumming along with Lynn. As Lynn entered her teenage years, she began to rebel against her mother and stepfather, setting the stage for a tumultuous period in her life. Journeying through adolescence, Lynn got involved with drugs, ultimately requiring admission to a clinic in Atlanta to confront her substance abuse issues. After breaking free from addiction, Lynn aspired to become a police officer. However, her dreams were shattered when she failed the psychological examination required for this path. Undeterred by this setback, Lynn redirected her ambition and found her calling as a 911 dispatcher in Cobb County, Georgia. In 1991, Lynn crossed paths with a Cobb County police officer named Glenn Turner, and she found herself instantly captivated by him. Glenn, born on September 25, 1963 in Atlanta, Fulton County, Georgia, had never entertained the idea of becoming a police officer. However, at the age of 20, he was dared by a group of friends to apply for the job. Surprisingly, he secured the position and was even more astonished to discover that he genuinely loved the work. Among his fellow officers, he earned the affectionate nickname Buddha due to his characteristic beer belly. Throughout his 10-year career in law enforcement, Glenn consistently received high praise. Watch Commander at the Cobb Police Department's Precinct 4 fondly recalled, He was a good officer. He was very dependable, reliable he did a good job. Beyond his commitment to policing, Glenn had a deep passion for cars, motorcycles, fishing, and simply enjoying life to the fullest. When Lynn and Glenn first met, she was employed by an attorney. She hadn't yet taken on the role of a 911 dispatcher. Much like Lynn, Glenn fell head over heels for her. They exchanged vows on August 21, 1993 at the Johnson Ferry Baptist Church and established their home in Marietta. However, cracks began to appear in their marriage shortly after the wedding, with the couple sleeping in separate bedrooms within six months. Lynn then found employment as a 911 dispatcher, while Glenn continued his career as a police officer. Financial challenges plagued their relationship as Lynn had a penchant for spending beyond their means. At one point, they owned multiple cars, including a Camaro with an elaborate paint job. To alleviate their financial woes, Glenn took on a weekend job at a nearby Chevron station, earning a modest $7 per hour. While he made earnest efforts to make ends meet, Lynn continued squandering their funds, embarking on weekend trips alone. Glenn's friend, Mike Archer, recalled the situation with candor, stating, He was kaput with her. He had worked 365 days and didn't have a penny to show for it. In early February 1995, Lynn left for Daytona Beach, Florida to attend the races, leaving Glenn behind. During that weekend, his friend, Donald Cawthorn, visited him while he was at work at the gas station. Glenn confided in Donald, explaining that upon Lynn's return, they were planning to discuss the state of their marriage, intending to either reconcile or pursue a divorce. Glenn expressed his desire to salvage their relationship, stating, I want to save my marriage. However, by the end of the month, Glenn had firmly decided that their marriage was beyond repair. On the 21st, he met his friend, Officer Mike Archer, for lunch at a local Chili's restaurant. During their conversation, Glenn confided in Mike about his intention to divorce Lynn. Mike observed that Glenn seemed upset and had not taken this decision lightly. Glenn explained that their marriage simply wasn't working. And he saw no alternative but to end it. He mentioned that he had made arrangements to stay in his parents' basement until he could find a place of his own. That evening, Mike took Glenn out for a few drinks, and Glenn's spirits seemed to improve. However, the following week, Glenn called in sick to work, citing severe illness, saying, I feel like my insides are coming out. I feel like I'm about to die. He told his sister that he was experiencing flu-like symptoms accompanied by vomiting, diarrhea, a persistent headache, and nosebleeds. On March 2nd, Glenn visited the emergency room at Kenistone Hospital, complaining of nausea accompanied by flu-like symptoms. At the hospital, he received fluids to address dehydration and medication to alleviate his nausea. While undergoing treatment, he reached out to Mike informing him, hey man, I'm receiving fluids in the hospital. I'm not sure if I'll be able to make it into work tomorrow. Subsequently, Glenn was discharged from the hospital and returned home. Upon returning home, he contacted his sister, Linda Hardy recounting his experience before going to the hospital, describing the excruciating stomach pain he had felt. Linda recalled, he was a big guy and he really didn't get sick that often. Glenn mentioned that after the medical attention he received, he felt considerably better. After this conversation, Glenn went to sleep and Lynn joined him in bed, both drifting off. Around 3 a.m., Lynn woke up to find Glenn in a delirious state, wandering around the house. He informed her that he believed an intruder was somewhere in the house, prompting him to search for the supposed intruder. Lynn followed him as he descended into the basement, where he began expressing extreme thirst. In a disoriented state, he even attempted to drink from a small jar of gasoline, which Lynn quickly prevented. She managed to guide Glenn back to bed, and in the morning, she offered him some green jello, suggesting it might help with his nausea. Around 9 a.m., Lynn left the house to attend to errands, returning around 2.30 p.m. Upon entering the home, she called out to Glenn, but received no response. She proceeded to the bedroom and discovered Glenn in bed, covered by a sheet, comforter, and quilt. Tragically, Glenn had passed away and Lynn promptly dialed 911 for assistance. Glenn's cause of death was determined to be cardiac dysrhythmia and a regular heartbeat attributed to an enlarged heart. Upon learning of Glenn's death, Mike Archer promptly reached out to Captain Harold Turner of the Crimes Against Persons Unit, expressing his concerns regarding the circumstances of Glenn's passing. Just a week earlier, Mike had seen Glenn, who had confided in him about his intentions to leave Lynn. At the time, Glenn, though emotionally distraught, appeared to be in good health. The sudden death due to an irregular heartbeat just one week later struck Mike as deeply perplexing. He was assured that homicide detectives would investigate the case. Glenn's mother, Kathy, was overwhelmed by grief. However, when she received the autopsy report, something caught her attention. Dr. Brian Frist, the pathologist, had noted the presence of a green fluid in her son's stomach, prompting her curiosity. Glenn's brother, James Turner, remembered We had a talk among ourselves as a family, but we agreed not to point fingers. After we received the autopsy report, that's when he decided we needed to ask questions. Kathy and her daughter, Linda Hardy, visited the medical examiner's office to inquire about the unusual green fluid. Dr. Frist explained that it wasn't customary to test stomach contents in the absence of evidence of foul play, emphasizing that there was no such evidence in Glenn's case. Despite this response, they left the medical examiner's office that day with lingering suspicions that something sinister had occurred, causing Glenn's death. Now faced with the solemn duty of arranging Glenn's funeral, they met with Lynn at the funeral home to discuss the arrangements. Donald Cawthorn, Glenn's friend, was also present, and he found Lynn's behavior to be peculiar. Overhearing her vehement complaints about the elaborate plans for an official police funeral, he later recalled, she didn't want a police funeral, period. Nevertheless, the police funeral proceeded as planned, with Glenn's casket draped in an American flag as tribute to his service. Lynn subsequently received a copy of Glenn's autopsy report, and subsequently severed all contact with his family. By the time Glenn had passed away, Lynn had already moved on to another man. As their marriage teetered on the brink of collapse, she had embarked on an affair with Randy Thompson, a relationship that began in the spring of 1994. During weekends when Glenn was working at the police station, Lynn would travel to Randy's parents' residence in Houston County to spend time with him. Randy, born in Warner Robins, Houston County, Georgia, on June 12, 1968, had a unique family dynamic. Despite his parents' separation, he had a steadfast father figure in his life named Perry. Perry assumed the role of Randy's stepfather when the young boy was just three years old. From the very beginning, Randy affectionately referred to him as Daddy. At the age of 18, Randy took the significant step of formally adopting Perry's surname, becoming Randy Thompson. Their family bond was remarkably strong. As Perry fondly recalled, Randy was a partier, just a good type kid. When he turned 21, we had a big blowout and we drank a beer with him. Perry, a former Gwinnett County police officer played a pivotal role in Randy's life by assisting him in securing his initial job with the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office. However, in 1995, Perry made a courageous decision to resign from his position. This decision came after he witnessed a police beating that tragically led to the suspect's death prompting him to speak out about the incident. Following this pivotal moment, Randy chose to follow in his father's footsteps and embarked on a career as a firefighter. He joined the ranks as one of the first 12 firefighters hired by Forsyth County as a paid employee, marking a transition from his previous volunteer-based role. These firefighters proudly referred to themselves as the Dirty Dozen. Randy had been involved with Lynn for several months leading up to Glenn's passing. Lynn had told him and his parents that she was divorced. Early in their relationship, it became evident to Randy and his family that Lynn had a penchant for extravagant spending. She drove fancy cars and donned expensive clothing. As a Christmas gift, Lynn gave Randy a pair of $1,100 boots and his parents a $600 stereo she informed Randy and his family that she had inherited a substantial trust from her grandmother. The reality, however, was that Lynn had collected a $100,000 life insurance policy taken out by Glenn. She received over $700 a month in police pension benefits as his widow and an additional $3,400 a month in retirement benefits. A mere four days after Glenn's burial, Lynn and Randy moved into an apartment in Cumming. Just three months later, Lynn treated Randy and two of his friends to a lavish seven-day cruise aboard the Royal Caribbean Cruise Line, covering all expenses, including a limousine ride to the Atlanta airport. On January 30th, 1996, Lynn and Randy welcomed a baby girl into the world. However, it wasn't long before cracks in their relationship began to surface. Those familiar with the couple described it as a love-hate relationship marred by allegations of violence. In 1997, Randy was arrested and charged with simple battery after Lynn accused him of hitting her in the mouth. He received a 10-month probation sentence and a $400 fine. In a previous incident, she had accused him of dislocating her shoulder and bruising her ribs. However, detectives chose not to pursue charges. Randy had also grappled with mental health issues, having attempted suicide twice. In 1997, Lynn called the police, expressing concerns that Randy had taken sleeping tablets and maybe trying to hurt himself. An ambulance was dispatched to their home, but paramedics decided that Randy could sleep off the effects rather than being admitted to the hospital. Despite their tumultuous relationship, it endured, and on June 18, 1998, they welcomed a baby boy into their lives. However, by the fall of 1999, Lynn and Randy decided to end their relationship, with Randy moving into an apartment. Nevertheless, they continued to see each other on and off, frequently meeting for dinner and spending time together in each other's homes. In May of 2000, Randy underwent outpatient surgery to address a persistent sinus infection, a condition exacerbated by allergies. Despite this, his physical condition remained robust, and he effortlessly passed the annual agility tests required for firefighters. However, in November of the same year, an unforeseen setback occurred, as Randy contracted a staph infection stemming from the surgery. To manage the infection, a catheter was inserted into his arm, and he was sent home with a course of antibiotics. Unfortunately, his body rejected this treatment, leading doctors to implant a shunt in his chest to ensure a consistent administration of antibiotics. On January 19th, Lynn and Randy dined at a Longhorn restaurant. Randy had shared with friends his hopes of reconciling their relationship. On the same day, he conversed with his friend and fellow firefighter, Barry Head, expressing optimism about his improving health. Barry recalled their conversation, stating, He was looking forward to going to the doctor on Monday and having that shunt removed. He told me they'd said if he kept getting better, they were going to take it out. However, within the next 24 hours, Randy's illness took a severe and sudden turn for the worse. Following dinner with Lynn, he was struck by a rapid onset of acute vomiting and an excruciating headache. Alarmed by his deteriorating condition, he reached out to his friend, Paul Adams, expressing that he was breathing strangely and needed assistance. Paul rushed to Randy's apartment where he discovered his friend in distress, vomiting, and experiencing hallucinations on the kitchen floor. Paul helped clean Randy up and placed him on the couch. He suggested taking Randy to the hospital, but Randy declined, believing that whatever ailment he had would pass. He suspected it might be food poisoning or a stomach bug. While Paul remained with Randy throughout the day, Lynn made intermittent appearances, arriving around noon with tea and food from Burger King. Another friend, Melanie Harper, came by to visit Randy and noticed his hallucinatory state. Randy referred to her as Simon, which was the name of his pet bird, and urged her to get into her cage. As the night wore on, Randy's condition didn't improve, and Melanie encouraged him to seek medical attention. He was admitted to the hospital where he received fluids and began to feel better, ultimately being discharged. Randy informed his mother, Nita, of his hospital visit that night, mentioning that doctors had told him his kidneys weren't functioning properly, but released him. Before leaving, they advised him to return on Monday for further evaluation. Randy returned home alone, and the following morning, he contacted his mother, Mentioning he still had a headache, but felt somewhat improved. Later that day, around midday, Paul called to check on Randy, who reported that Lynn had visited and prepared grilled cheese sandwiches and tea, which he managed to keep down. However, when Paul called Randy a few hours later, Randy's condition had significantly worsened. Randy informed Paul that he was vomiting again and experiencing dizziness. On the subsequent Monday morning, Randy failed to show up for his scheduled doctor's appointment. Concerned, his friend Barry went to check on him at the request of Randy's mother. When Barry knocked at the front door and received no response, Lynn called him and indicated where the spare key should be kept. Unfortunately, the key wasn't there, prompting Barry to break into Randy's apartment. Inside the living room, Barry discovered Randy slumped over on the couch with his hands between his knees. Tragically, Randy had passed away at the young age of 32. Upon learning of Randy's death, Lynn chose not to return home immediately. Instead, she remained at work until her usual departure time at 5 p.m., Randy's body was subsequently removed from the apartment and transported to the medical examiner's office. The pathologist, Dr. Mark Kapanen, determined that Randy's death was attributed to heart disease. His autopsy revealed severe artery blockage, and it was estimated that he had passed away 10 to 12 hours before being discovered. Randy's family was not only devastated, but also profoundly perplexed by his untimely passing. Randy had been the epitome of good health and had been working at a demanding job just the week before his death. Nita remembered, especially since I talked to him Friday and he said he was feeling better. Another peculiar detail that struck Randy's loved ones was that when his lifeless body was discovered, his cockatoo, Simon, remained in his cage. Randy rarely confined Simon. They shared his bed, and the bird had, over time, managed to destroy a fair amount of furniture. Despite their mounting concerns, Randy's death was officially attributed to natural causes, and the case was subsequently closed. He was laid to rest the following week, with a solemn ceremony featuring a 21-gun salute and a gathering of firefighters paying their respects. At the graveside, Perry, Randy's father, was ceremonially presented with Randy's number 24 helmet by the fire department chief. In a poignant tribute, Randy's fellow firefighters placed a wreath bearing the inscription, The Dirty Dozen. Notably absent from the funeral was Lynn, and Nita and Perry never crossed paths with her again. However, they were aware that she was the beneficiary of Randy's $200,000 life insurance policy. Less than a week after Randy's passing, Lynn called to file a claim on the policy, only to discover that Randy had let it lapse. Instead, she was informed of another policy worth $36,830 which she promptly collected. Despite the official closure of Randy's case, Nita and Perry couldn't shake the nagging feeling that something sinister had happened to their son. On June 1st, they made the trip to Atlanta to meet with Dr. Mark Kopanen, the pathologist who had conducted Randy's autopsy. They shared their concerns with him, and to their surprise, he admitted that certain aspects of the case troubled him as well. Dr. Kopanen disclosed that during the autopsy, he had detected the presence of calcium oxalate crystals in Randy's kidneys. These crystals could be a result of the body metabolizing antifreeze and are a strong indicator of poison. However, he clarified that they could also be caused by other factors, such as excessive protein consumption and certain metabolic disorders the doctor decided to order further testing to delve deeper into the matter. Nita and Perry's growing suspicions caught the attention of Glenn's mother, Kathy Turner, who had grappled with her own unresolved questions about her son's mysterious death six years earlier at the age of 31. Kathy didn't want to intrude on the grief of Nita and Perry Thompson, but a persistent feeling told her that something sinister had happened to her son, Glenn, and now, tragically, to Randy. Three weeks after Randy's passing, Kathy penned a heartfelt letter to Randy's parents, which read I just want to share my sorrow in the loss of your son, Randy. My son was married to Lynn, and I understand she had been living with Randy. My son, Glenn, died six years ago in March mysteriously, and he was 31 years old. Randy being 32 just about broke my heart. I did have questions. If I can comfort you in any way, write me or call me. She sent the letter to the funeral home in Warner Robbins, requesting that it be forwarded to Randy's parents. It wasn't until June 15th that Nita and Perry finally received Kathy's letter. After reading it, they immediately reached out to Kathy, their hearts heavy with sorrow and shared grief. Upon reanalysis of Randy's tissues, a shocking revelation emerged. His cause of death was antifreeze poisoning, not heart problems as previously believed. As it turned out, the initial toxicology screening had been conducted incorrectly. The individual responsible for the test had inadvertently diluted the sample too strongly, resulting in a lower concentration of ethylene glycol. Although the antifreeze level was still sufficient to cause death, the circumstances surrounding it needed thorough investigation to ascertain whether it was accidental, a result of suicide, or potentially even murder. During their inquiry into Randy's suspicious demise, detectives uncovered the earlier death of Glenn, which had occurred six years prior. On July 29, 2001, detectives made a significant announcement. The deaths of both Glenn and Randy were being reopened for investigation. Both Glenn and Randy had been attributed the same cause of death, cardiac dysrhythmia, leading detectives to question how this determination had been reached, especially after antifreeze was found in Randy's system. In their pursuit of answers, detectives requested tissue slides from Glenn's autopsy, They were taken aback by the presence of calcium oxalate crystals. Dr. Chris Sperry, Georgia's chief medical examiner, remarked, I've looked at kidney slides from tens of thousands of people, and the only time I've seen oxalate crystals in these concentrations are from antifreeze poisoning. However, Cobb County medical examiner Dr. Brian Frist held a contrasting view he noted that he frequently observed kidney crystals linked to various disease-related problems. The doctor asserted that Glenn's autopsy indicated an enlarged heart, providing no reason to suspect anything other than a natural death. Nonetheless, Dr. Frist expressed his willingness to conduct a second autopsy due to the peculiar circumstances surrounding both Glenn and Randy's deaths. Detectives subsequently made arrangements to exhume Glenn's body for further testing. In particular, detectives aimed to determine the presence of ethylene glycol in Glenn's system, a sweet and odorless chemical found in antifreeze and various household products. Traditional toxicology screenings typically only examine alcohol and select drugs, such as cocaine and marijuana. Detectives emphasized that they had not yet confirmed the commission of a crime and underscored the need for further forensic examinations to unravel the truth. Glenn's family and friends didn't express surprise when they learned that the case was being reopened. Some of them had harbored suspicions against Lynn for quite some time. In the months leading up to Glenn's death, he and Lynn had been grappling with marital problems. Glenn had even confided in two of his closest friends that if he were to meet an untimely end, Lynn was somehow involved. Furthermore, numerous members of Glenn's family and some friends had voiced their concerns regarding his suspicious death to Cobb Police and the Medical Examiner's Office six years earlier. Glenn's brother, James Turner, voiced his disappointment, stating, I would think if one of your own, a police officer, had passed away suspiciously like this, at least it would be looked into more. He asserted that Glenn's death had not been investigated at all and accused the police of turning a cold shoulder to the family and friends who had pushed for an inquiry. In response to these criticisms, Detective Scott Brohl explained that there had been no apparent signs of foul play at the scene of Glenn's death. He clarified that when there are no obvious indications at the scene, detectives rely on the medical examiner to determine the cause. Dr. Brian Frist, the medical examiner, had attributed Glenn's death to natural causes, leading detectives to forego an investigation at the time. The reopening of the case brought mixed emotions for Glenn's family. His mother, Kathy, remarked, I'm glad and sad, too. I feel at least we're going somewhere. It felt we were going backward for some time. As the news about the reopening of both cases flooded the media, some reporters attempted to obtain comments from Lynn, who had connections to both men, but she declined to speak. I don't wish to talk to anyone, she told one reporter before abruptly hanging up. Lynn's attorney attributed the heightened interest in the case to the families of Glenn and Randy, stating, There are all sorts of allegations flying around. Suffice to say, the families have the pot boiling. While rumors were rampant, not everyone believed that Lynn was somehow implicated in the deaths of both Glenn and Randy. Sergeant Scott Halter of the Dallas Police Department, a close friend of Lynn and Randy, commented, Unfortunately, when someone Glenn's age passes away, first you want to blame someone. Plus, nobody in his family liked Lynn. It just makes it easier if you can blame someone. However, there were striking similarities in the way both men had died, raising numerous questions. Both had experienced a sudden onset of flu-like symptoms, severe headaches, and acute vomiting. At the hospital, both were treated with intravenous fluids and released with Phenergan suppositories to manage their vomiting. On July 30, 2001, gravediggers toiled in the heat and humidity as they unearthed the casket enclosing Glenn's remains. Exhumations were exceedingly rare in Cobb County, prompting District Attorney Patrick Head to remark, I've been practicing law for 23 years, and I've only had one other experience in exhuming a body. Typically, the next of kin would provide consent for a body to be exhumed. But in this instance, that role fell to Lynn. Instead, the Cobb medical examiner was granted the authority to disinter Glenn's body. His brother, James, expressed his relief that the case was finally receiving the attention it deserved after all these years. He lamented, I think there should have been an investigation done six years ago, and it wasn't. I just hope now it's not too late. Following the exhumation, Glenn's remains were transported to the medical examiner's office, where Dr. Brian Frist conducted a repeat autopsy. Sample tissues were dispatched to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation State Crime Lab in Decatur for testing, as well as to the National Medical Services, a specialized private lab in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, renowned for toxicology analysis. Medical examiner Mark Bishop remarked We still do not have a time frame. We were unable to obtain the samples, but we're not sure how long it will take for tests to be conducted. While the testing procedures were underway, Glenn was reverently reinterred at Cheatham Hill Memorial Park in Marietta. His grieving loved ones gathered around his final resting place, watching as he was interred for the second time. The pain of losing him remained as raw as it had been in 1995. Mike Archer, a former Cobb police sergeant who had served as Glenn's supervisor and friend, articulated the sentiments of the family The family needs closure, but at the same time, I want justice. Burial ceremony was officiated by Reverend Mike Cavan, who sought to provide solace, acknowledging, I don't have answers to some things. What I do know is the good news, that love is not bound by life and death. Your presence here today demonstrates that, even after all this time, you've gathered out of your love for Glenn. On August 4th, detectives initiated a reexamination of the circumstances surrounding the death of a third individual with ties to Lynn. Major Ronald Casper of the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office passed away on December 13th, 1999, due to pulmonary distress. Although there was no romantic involvement between him and Lynn, she had previously served as his administrative assistant prior to their office becoming the subject of a Georgia Bureau of Investigation, or GBI, inquiry into missing funds. The financial discrepancy had come to light when it appeared that nearly $40,000 was unaccounted for, and Lynn Turner had been involved in managing financial transactions for the sheriff's office. The 1999 embezzlement investigation was eventually closed due to lack of concrete evidence further complicated by the disarray of the department's records, making it uncertain whether the funds were indeed missing. Major Casper had battled diabetes and carried a weight of 275 pounds. He had spent nearly three weeks in the hospital before his demise, grappling with severe swelling and infection of his ankle. Medical professionals suspected a potential rattlesnake or brown recluse spider bite. A week after being discharged, he had visited his mother, Ruth Roberts, in Swanee, on the afternoon of his passing. Shockingly, just two and a half hours after leaving her residence, he was dead. An autopsy had not been conducted, and his death certificate attributed the cause to acute respiratory failure and a pulmonary embolism, referring to a clot in the lung. Ted Bailey, the chief forensic investigator for the Gwinnett County Medical Examiner's Office, deemed his death non-suspicious, citing his overall poor health at the time. During this period, Lynn had departed from the sheriff's office and had taken up employment with the Forsyth County District Attorney. Nevertheless, given the dubious nature of Glenn and Randy's deaths, detectives sought to reevaluate the circumstances surrounding Major Casper's passing. On August 10th, a Superior Court judge appointed Prosecutor Jack E. Mallard to investigate and, if found necessary to prosecute, any matters related to Randy's death. District Attorney Philip Smith had recused himself from the case due to Lynn's previous employment as a secretary in his office until August of 2000. Prosecutor Mallard had a history of handling significant cases in Georgia, including the 1982 conviction of Wayne Williams, and Fred Tokers. Simultaneously, on the same day, Lynn held a press conference alongside her attorney, during which she announced she would refrain from making comments while the investigation was ongoing. Her attorney stated, we have confidence that there will be no charges to be made against Ms. Turner. In October, Glenn's toxicology report was finalized, revealing that he had succumbed to antifreeze poisoning. Dr. Frist subsequently amended the official cause of death to poisoning by ethylene glycol. This development prompted detectives to embark on determining whether Glenn's and Randy's deaths were homicides, accidents, or suicides. Dr. Frist commented, this now gives the district attorney and police another piece of the puzzle. The following month, detectives officially reclassified Randy's manner of death as a homicide. Dr. Kopanen expressed the belief that someone else had poisoned him, ruling out the possibility of accidental or self-inflicted causes. Shortly thereafter, Major Casper's remains were exhumed, and an autopsy revealed that he had passed away from a heart attack attributed to coronary artery disease. No suspicious circumstances surrounded his death, leading detectives to exclude it from being linked to Glenn's and Randy's cases. The investigation continued, and in March, 2002, Kathy penned a letter to Cobb County District Attorney Pat Head, criticizing law enforcement authorities for their handling of her son Glenn's death and accusing them of sluggishness in the ongoing investigation. Despite Dr. Frist's revision of Glenn's death certificate to indicate antifreeze poisoning, the classification as murder had not yet been made. GBI spokesman John Bankhead responded, emphasizing the ongoing nature of the case and the necessity to ensure all aspects were thoroughly investigated. It wasn't until the conclusion of June that Glenn's murder was officially categorized as a homicide. Dr. Frist remarked, "'By my saying it's a homicide?' I believe there is a suspect because a homicide is death by another. Who that person is, I don't know.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
0: On November 2nd, a grand jury handed down an indictment on Lynn, charging her with the murder of her husband Glenn. They had heard testimony from five witnesses, two medical examiners, an agent with a GBI, a Cobb homicide detective, and a GBI forensic toxicologist. After the indictment was handed down, Jeff Martin, a close friend of Glenn's, read from a prepared statement on behalf of the family. He stated, We are deeply saddened by the loss of our son, brother, and uncle, We ask that everyone keep our family, the Thompson family and Lynn's family, in your prayers. Lynn handed herself in to authorities later that same day after Superior Court Judge Conley Ingram issued a bench warrant for her. The following week, detectives announced for the first time during Lynn's bond hearing that she was the main suspect in Brandy's murder, as well as Glenn's. Her defense attorney, Jimmy Berry, objected when prosecutor Russ Parker sought to draw a link between the two deaths. The prosecutor also said that Lynn's status as a suspect in Randy's death suggested she could do harm to others if released. Cobb County Chief Magistrate Frank Cox declined to release Lynn on bond until the completion of a mental evaluation. The 18 month investigation into Lynn uncovered that she was around $174,000 in debt by the time of Randy's death in 2001. She had outstanding credit card debt of at least $35,000 and was always late on a $115,000 mortgage. Some months, her cell phone bills ran as high as $460, with outstanding balances in excess of $1,300 she had numerous credit cards, some of which were canceled due to late payments. On one of the cards, Lynn had an overdue balance approaching $8,000. Between October and December, 2000, she had written at least six checks with insufficient funds in her account. On another account at the Regions Bank, she had accumulated $1,274 in overdraft fees. Around three weeks before Randy died, she entered a branch of the bank and vowed that she would pay off those fees shortly. On the day that Randy died, she called the Social Security Administration, and Lynn asked how she could draw death benefits for their two children. On December 5th, Lynn returned to court, where a judge denied her bond after reviewing the results of the court-ordered psychological evaluation. Dr. Osama Hindash had found that Lynn showed no emotion and that she would pose a threat if released. Her defense team requested another bond hearing, and on January 11th, Lynn was released from jail on a $200,000 bond. Judge Frank Cox didn't want to approve the bond, but he had no legal right to keep her incarcerated because he could not find evidence that she was a flight risk or a danger to others. Her defense team had argued that Dr. Hindash could not pinpoint exactly why he felt Lynn was a danger to the community. After leaving jail, Lynn moved in with her mother in Cumming and was ordered to be held on house arrest. Glenn's friend, Mike Archer, commented on her release. Lynn Turner's been running free for seven years. She always comes up smelling like a rose, so I am not shocked at all. In October, the Cobb County District Attorney's Office filed a motion to revoke Lynn's bond on the grounds that she was seen at a Kroger grocery store, a drug store, and at her children's elementary school. As per the conditions of her bond, she was only allowed to leave her mother's house for court hearings and necessary medical treatments. Despite the violations, Lynn was allowed to remain free on bond. Lynn's murder trial was scheduled for February, 2004, but at the beginning of that month, her defense team requested a change of venue. They argued that it would be impossible to find an impartial jury in Cobb County, and the judge agreed. The trial was moved to Perry in Houston County, and jury selection promptly got underway. By May 1st, 2004, A jury was selected, and the trial was ready to commence. Lynn was escorted into the courtroom wearing a periwinkle blue suit. During opening statements, District Attorney Patrick Head used eight boards to trace the chronology of events that led to Lynn's indictment. He stated, This case is about lust, greed, and murder. This case is about one woman and two men. Central to the state's argument was a legal doctrine known as similar transaction evidence, which permitted them to demonstrate substantial parallels between the murders of both Glenn and Randy, despite Lynn facing charges exclusively in Glenn's case.
1: It's her lifestyle, money, with gifts, cruises, and housing to entrap her victims. The murder weapon, ethylene glycol, is so unique such as to identify the perpetrator as in using the same pistol in two murders.
0: The district attorney declared, the evidence will show there is one link, one thread, one common denominator, and it is this woman, Julia Lynn Womack Turner. In his opening statement, defense attorney Jimmy Berry said that the entire state's case would likely rely on circumstantial evidence.
1: How did she do it in Mr. Turner's case? How did she do it in Mr. Thompson's? Don't know. How did she do it in Mr. Turtle? When did she do it in Mr. Turner's? Don't know. When did she do it in Mr. Thompson's? Don't know. Where? Don't know.
0: Defense attorney Barry cautioned the jury against placing too much faith in witness testimonies, hinting that various witnesses would testify about Lynn to tarnish her character. He remarked, Innuendo, the evidence will show. Rumor, the evidence will show. Gossip, the evidence will show. Death, the evidence will show. Evidence of a criminal act, the evidence will not show. Defense attorney Barry also suggested that Glenn may have drunk something poisonous himself the night before he died. The gasoline Lynn reported he drank in the basement. On the first day of the trial, the jury listened to a range of witnesses who recounted the unraveling of Lynn and Glenn's marriage. Glenn's friend, Donald Cawthorn, told the jury how Glenn had told him in February that they were either going to work it out or he was filing for divorce. Detectives had uncovered that during the specific weekend when Lynn attended the races in Daytona, she was accompanied by Randy. Next on the stand was Cynthia McGee, Lynn's former coworker from the 911 Center. She recalled an incident in the fall of 1994 when she noticed Lynn reading a physician's desk reference. When Cynthia asked about her reading choice, Lynn expressed her interest in medicine and its workings in the human body. During cross-examination, defense attorney Vic Reynolds suggested that Lynn was reading the book due to her job. Cynthia countered by stating she had never seen the book before and that any incidents related to medicines or chemicals were referred to poison control. Cynthia then took the jury into the insular world of police officers and 911 operators. They were all part of the same team, and after work, many would gather at a local bar for drinks. She recalled an incident at the Crystal Chandelier Bar where Lynn, Despite being married to Glenn at the time, attempted to persuade another officer to leave with her. Cynthia also mentioned Glenn's burial and how she overheard Lynn asking another police officer if he'd be coming over tonight. Her testimony was followed by Corporal David Dunkerton and Sergeant Bobby Fisher, both of whom testified that Glenn had told them if anything ever happened to him, they needed to look at Lynn. Sergeant Fisher also relayed to the jury that approximately a week before Glenn died, he had informed him that Lynn had issued a threat to shoot him with his service weapon following a heated argument. Another friend of Glenn, Officer Mike Archer, also shared details about the troubles within their marriage. Glenn had confided in him that they slept in separate bedrooms and had only been intimate twice since their marriage. Under cross-examination by defense attorney Barry, he was asked whether the police department is kind of like a rumor mill. He concurred, noting there were whispers about Lynn within the police department. Mike informed the jury that following Glenn's death, he did tell his superiors about his suspicions regarding Lynn. He testified, I was told to do my job and they'd look into it. Another close friend, Jeff Mack, informed the jury about Glenn's intentions to move into his father's basement shortly before his passing. A friend of Lynn, Stacy Roderick, then testified that Lynn told her she had feelings for somebody other than her husband. She showed him a picture of the man she had feelings for, and it was Randy Thompson. The prosecution then presented various witnesses who recounted Lynn's demeanor at Glenn's funeral and she hadn't even shown up to Randy's funeral. Andrea Edwards testified.
2: So the uh, one that gave the prayer told us if we wanted to, we could go up to a little building and get out of bed with us. So my husband and I walked up there. Of course, the young boys, Jeff, along with the others, were standing there at the graveside. And we walked up to the building and Stood there a few minutes. When
1: you say say we walked up to the building, whom are you referring to? My husband. Okay, all right. Continue please ma'am.
2: We walked up to the building and we were standing there and uh, Lynn walked up to my left. My husband was to the right. She walked up to my left and there was some lady with her, not sure who it was, but I heard her say, I wish they'd hurry up so we could get the hell out of here.
0: All of the witnesses attested that Lynn appeared composed, distant, and none of them observed her shedding tears. During the murder trial, they also got to hear from Randy's family. When they first met Lynn, she told them that she was divorced. The truth was, however, that she was still married to Glenn. Nita said that her son wasn't suicidal when he died. She said, he'd just given his life back to God. He was talking about going back to church, buying a home, raising his kids. Randy loved life too much to do anything like that. However, under cross-examination, she admitted that when Randy died, he was being sued by his ex-wife for failing to pay child support to his former wife. He had also allowed his life insurance policies to lapse, and he had asked his parents for help with financial problems. She also admitted that he had attempted suicide twice in 1997 and 1999. According to Nita, she thought these attempts were simply to get Lynn's attention. The testimony then shifted its focus to the events leading up to Glenn's death. Don Freeman, the emergency room physician, recounted that when Glenn was admitted to the hospital the day before his death, he had been treated for flu-like symptoms. Dr. Freeman speculated that although Glenn didn't exhibit the typical symptoms of acute antifreeze poisoning from a single large dose, his condition could have been attributed to the consumption of smaller, lethal doses of antifreeze over several days. Following Dr. Freeman's testimony, the jury was presented with a photograph it depicted the basement in Lynn and Glenn's residence, featuring a can of gasoline. According to Lynn, this was what Glenn had attempted to drink in the basement the night before. Adjacent to the gasoline, however, was a blue plastic gallon container of Peak brand antifreeze. Detective Charles Mazarigos was unaware of the significance of this at the time he took the photograph, but there was no doubt about its identity. Defense attorney Barry questioned the detective about why he had not investigated the suspicious death of a fellow officer. Detective Mazarigos replied that they had no grounds for suspicion at the time. The prosecution then began presenting their theory of motivation, financial gain. Lynn had received approximately $245,000 in life insurance and related benefits following Glenn's death, with the possibility of an additional $460,000. Glenn had changed the beneficiary on his $100,000 life insurance policy to Lynn shortly before they were married. According to Vincent Turley, a former Metropolitan Life Insurance agent,
1: once I had left the police department, I was working with MetLife. Of course, you're, you're very busy uh, trying to gain customers uh, wherever you can, um, but Glenn had called me to change the beneficiary. And you recall the time frame of when that was? I do not exactly. Generally speaking, what was it? What can you relate that to? Uh, Glenn, Glenn had called me and stated that uh, Lynn wanted to change the beneficiary on the policy, and I said, that's fine. You know, I'll, I'll get to you and do that, And, of course, it wasn't right away. It was a couple of days later or something. And I remember that he had called me again. Let me ask you, before you get into that, with regards to his calling you to change it to Lynn, was anything unusual about that at that time? Um, At that time, no. I believe it was actually after they were married.
0: After Glenn's death, Lynn withdrew $99,000 initially and then made an additional withdrawal of $2,100. Subsequently, she received a final check of approximately $50 before the account was closed on June 20, 1995. Wilma Robinson, the human resources manager for Cobb County, informed the jury that Lynn had collected a one-time life insurance benefit of nearly $50,000 from the county as well. Additionally, she received approximately $84,000 in monthly death benefit payments stemming from Glenn's demise through April of that year. Testimony was also presented regarding the money Lynn got from Randy's death. His ex-wife, Dara Laughlin, told the courtroom that Lynn was angry when she learned that he had let the life insurance policy lapse. Despite knowing this, Lynn still tried to file a claim for his life insurance policy. The prosecution then called Samantha Gilliland to the stand whose testimony was expected to seriously undermine Lynn's case. An animal shelter manager, Samantha recalled an encounter in 1999 when Lynn approached her with some unusual inquiries. Lynn asked whether antifreeze had the same effect on cats as it did on dogs, leaving Samantha perplexed. Lynn then inquired about the mechanics of euthanasia and whether anyone could easily obtain the drugs used.
2: Asked me what did we use, and I told her I didn't know the name of it. We just called it the purple stuff. Anytime that we had an animal to euthanize, we asked for enough purple stuff to dispose of the animal that we had. And she had asked me, could anybody get it? Was it easy to get a hold of? And I I told her, no, it was a controlled substance, and that even us as a licensed clinic had trouble getting it at times because of the amounts that we used.
0: Dr. Frist, who conducted Glenn's autopsy, took the stand during the trial He reported that upon discovering Glenn had ingested antifreeze, he conducted various tests.
1: So what I did is I just took Gatorade, Jell-O, sweet tea, and soup, and just saw could I mix these things together? Would you be able to tell that it's in there or not? And that's what I did. I took Gatorade, chicken soup, sweet tea, and uh, Jell-O, and mixed them with Ethylene, gly- uh, ethylene glycol, the antifreeze, and just wanted to see what it would look like, and I wanted to see what it would taste like.
0: Dr. Frist mixed antifreeze with jello, sweet iced tea, Campbell's chicken soup, and lemon lime Gatorade. To his surprise, when mixed with jello, it appeared indistinguishable from regular jello. He even dipped his finger into the antifreeze mixed with sweet iced tea, claiming it tasted like regular sweet iced tea. The purpose of these tests was to determine whether someone could ingest antifreeze without detecting its presence. The final witness the prosecution called on was Dr. Chris Sperry, the state's chief medical examiner. Dr. Sperry left no room for doubt stating that both Glenn and Randy had been poisoned with antifreeze. He suggested the possibility that Randy may have received more than one dose of antifreeze, noting that between the time Randy visited a doctor and his subsequent death, he ingested more ethylene glycol, more antifreeze, and that is what ultimately caused his death. Without mincing his words, he said, there really are no coincidences in life. The prosecution then rested their case and the defense began theirs. They called upon various witnesses, primarily Lynn's friends and family, who testified that she did indeed express grief following the deaths of Glenn and Randy. Lynn's mother, Helen, mentioned that her daughter was a reserved individual who tended to keep her emotions to herself, possibly creating the impression that she didn't care. Uh, She just does not show openly her
2: feelings or her emotions. I mean, it's all done privately.
1: Okay. Is that similar to anyone else in the family?
2: We're all that way. All
1: right. Did you obviously know Glenn Turner?
2: Glenn? Oh, yes. He's he's my son-in-law. All right.
1: Did uh, he and your family get along pretty well? Yes, sir. All right. Did you have an occasion to spend very much time with uh, Glenn and Lynn? Both? I spent
2: a great deal of time with them. They would come and have lunch with me at the office and uh, then I would visit at home so we spent a great deal of time.
1: Okay. How did you learn that Glenn had passed away?
2: Uh, someone called my home identifying himself as a deputy and I don't recall his name <coughs> and asked me to come don't tell,
1: to- this Don't tell us what he's told you oh, but based on what the conversation, got, what did you do?
2: I got a telephone call to come to her house. I immediately left the office and went to her house.
1: Okay. When you got there, were there other people in the home?
2: Oh, there it was full of police officers and people.
1: All right. When you arrived, did you see Liam?
2: Uh, yes, sir. <clears throat> As well, I went in the front door, I could see her her dining room table, and she was sitting at the dining room table.
1: <clears throat> did you go to her? And speak I went or?
2: immediately to her.
1: What was her reaction when you got there? How she was, was she hysterical.
2: Acting? She was crying hysterically. And I asked her what was wrong, and uh, she didn't respond. And I grabbed her. She had her arms up, and I grabbed her arms, and I shook her, and I said, Lynn, what is wrong, honey? Tell me what is wrong. And she just said, he's dead. And that's all, and all she ever got out.
1: <coughs> what was, she, was she crying?
0: She was hysterical. Lynn's friend, Jessica Daves, shared that during their seven-year friendship, she had only witnessed Lynn cry once, and that was at Randy's gravesite after his funeral. While there was some speculation that Lynn might testify in her own defense, she ultimately chose not to. With the trial concluded, it was time for closing arguments. Before then, prosecutor Jack Mallard announced that a grand jury was being lined up to possibly indict Lynn in Randy's murder. Her defense team immediately asked for a mistrial, but their request was denied and closing statements got underway. District Attorney Head urged the jury to consider the odds of two men dying from antifreeze poisoning, six years apart, both of whom were connected to the same woman. He stated, You have a better chance of winning the lottery tonight. He then read aloud a poem by Dr. John Tresdale. My crime is quiet and well thought out. The evidence is really on my side, for I count on you to bury my homicide. I am a poisoner. Can you catch me? As he read the poem aloud, he displayed a picture of Lynn with the words of the poem running across her face. During their closing arguments, the defense argued that the evidence against Lynn was entirely circumstantial. In the end, the jury found Lynn Turner guilty of the murder of Glenn Turner. This decision did not come easily. Nine out of the 12 jurors believed that Lynn was guilty while the remaining three believed in her innocence. It took several votes for them to reach a unanimous decision As the verdict was announced, Lynn displayed no emotion while Glenn and Randy's family members began to weep. Outside of the courtroom, Glenn's brother, James, expressed, I am happy that she will never be able to do this to anybody else ever again. Randy's family stood alongside Glenn's family and while they found relief in the verdict, it did not bring closure to their son's death. Randy's father, Perry said, It's a bittersweet day for all of us. Our two sons aren't coming back. Under Georgia law, Lynn was automatically sentenced to life in prison, with eligibility for parole after 16 years. On May 18th, Lynn's defense team filed a motion for a new trial. They argued that the testimony of witnesses who said that Randy wasn't suicidal were not qualified to make such a judgment. They also argued that Prosecutor Mallard erred in telling the jury that they were lining up a grand jury to indict Lynn on Randy's murder and that the poem read aloud during closing arguments was inappropriate. The week after the motion was filed, the Cobb County Board of Commissioners voted unanimously to cease the benefits paid to Lynn. Chairman Sam Owens announced, No one should gain from murder. A beneficiary should not gain from a murder they commit. Those are public tax dollars, and those dollars should not go to someone convicted of murdering the deceased. It's common sense and the law. On October 4, 2004, Lynn was indicted on a charge of malice murder in the case of Randy. Almost two weeks later, she was indicted on charges of forging documents to obtain a loan to pay her defense fees. She had submitted forged documents to refinance her home to a Gwinnett County loan company. Then she used the proceeds, about $58,000, to pay legal costs for her trial. Prosecutors announced in December that they were seeking the death penalty against Lynn if she were convicted of Randy's murder. She subsequently pleaded not guilty to all of the charges against her, paving the way for the second murder trial. It would be the county's first death penalty case in 20 years. Lynn was being defended again by Vic Reynolds and Jimmy Barry. Barry was known as an attorney who rarely turned down a death penalty case, and out of his more than 50 death penalty clients, only one was sentenced to die. Jack Potts. In that case, Barry was only assisting Potts, who insisted on representing himself. Before the trial began, Judge James Bodiford rejected Lynn's motion for a new trial in the murder of Glenn. On January 16, 2007, as the trial was fast approaching, Judge Jeffrey Bagley agreed to move the trial from Forsyth County. Lynn's defense team once more argued she wouldn't be able to get an impartial jury, and the judge agreed. The trial was relocated to Whitfield County, and on March 12, the proceedings were ready to commence with opening statements. Prosecutor Jack Mallard asserted during his statement that Lynn's insatiable greed for Glenn and Randy's life insurance money had driven her to commit murder. He emphasized the fact that both Glenn and Randy had succumbed to ethylene glycol poisoning six years apart, leaving only Lynn as the surviving common denominator. Mallard framed the case as one marred by lust, greed, and homicide, portraying Lynn as a financially strapped woman, with extravagant tastes but limited resources. In response, defense attorney Vic Reynolds launched an attack on the absence of direct evidence against his client. He conveyed to the jury that they would hear a case built on unfounded rumors, gossip, and insinuations, but not a shred of concrete evidence. Reynolds also pointed out the inconsistency that Lynn was charged with Randy's murder only after being convicted of Glenn's murder. The trial presented much of the same evidence as the previous trial, featuring testimony from Glenn's friends and family regarding their tumultuous relationship. Witnesses also recounted Lynn's perceived lack of grief during Glenn's funeral. Subsequently, the focus shifted to Randy's hospitalization leading up to his death. Dr. Claude Morgan testified that he had treated Randy for what he believed to be a viral infection before releasing him. Dr. Morgan expressed his expectation that Randy would recover from the intestinal virus within a few days. Witnesses from Randy's circle testified about his previous suicide attempts, with Terry Pruitt noting that he believed Randy was seeking attention. Terry found it peculiar that Lynn neither attended Randy's funeral nor brought their children to the service. According to Terry, Lynn claimed that she did not want to explain to the children the circumstances of their father's death. In the middle of Randy's funeral, Lynn was calling his insurance company. GBI Special Agent David King testified that she had two calls roughly an hour apart to the Cotton States Insurance Company offices in Cumming. While she didn't receive the $200,000 life insurance policy because it had lapsed, she did receive around $36,000. Testimony was once more presented about Lynn's cold demeanor at Glenn's funeral Somebody also said they saw her holding hands with another police officer during the service. Dr. Mark Kopanen, who conducted Randy's autopsy, told the jury that after speaking with Nita and Perry, he couldn't stop thinking about Randy's death. He testified, I promised at that meeting that I would ask the specimens be retested. He said the retesting showed that Randy's blood contained 350 milligrams of ethylene glycol per liter of blood. Neither he nor Dr. Frist, who had performed Glenn's autopsy, had ever seen ethylene glycol poisoning before. Once more, Dr. Frist told the jury about his test with the antifreeze and various food products, telling them it didn't change the appearance or the taste. Dr. Chris Sperry told the jury that he believed both Glenn and Randy died of antifreeze poisoning, adding that it doesn't take much of the colorless and odorless substance to kill. He theorized Randy was already recovering from a dose of antifreeze when he went to the hospital two days before he died. It was suggested that once he returned home, Lynn poisoned his food again, leading to his ultimate death. The jury also got to hear about the life insurance money Lynn had collected in the wake of Glenn's death and the $200,000 life insurance policy she expected to receive after Randy's death if he did not allow it to lapse. The prosecution then rested their case and the defense began presenting theirs. They called on Officer Paul Rushing, who said that on the day of Glenn's funeral, he was asked to escort Lynn, which is why they were holding hands. Tammy Moody, one of Lynn's friends, described Lynn as a person who did not show emotions publicly. Once all of the testimony was complete, Closing arguments began. District Attorney Penny Penn said that Lynn had killed both Glenn and Randy because they were worth more to her dead than alive. She stated, They are men that had the misfortune to care about this woman. She said that although nobody had seen Lynn poison Glenn or Randy, the fact remained that she was the last person with them before they became ill and was the last person to give them anything to eat or drink. Defense attorney Vic Reynolds said in his closing arguments that the prosecution had failed in their duty to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. He said, there's a problem in this case, a lot of them. It's simply not a provable case. There's no evidence. The jury were sent off to deliberate and they returned within a couple of hours, finding Lynn Turner guilty of the murder of Randy Thompson Defense attorney Barry commented that the verdict was not a surprise. He said, you know, when you've got one conviction already, it's really tough to convince a jury she had nothing to do with the second death. Lynn was instructed to return to court two days later for the penalty phase of her trial. In this phase, the prosecution aimed to secure a death sentence, while the defense hoped for a more lenient outcome. The defense called upon Lynn's mother, Helen, who passionately pleaded for her daughter's life. She painted a picture of Lynn as a well-behaved girl during her upbringing and emphasized the importance of her children maintaining contact with their mother, even if it meant communicating from behind prison walls. Helen implored the court not to separate them, saying, They talk to her every day, and she's keeping them alive and going, Please don't take her away from us. District Attorney Penn countered this plea by suggesting that the children might be better off without their mother, asserting that Lynn had a history of using her family and those around her, including Randy. A family friend, Joe Moody, also joined in the plea for Lynn's life, highlighting her respect for authority. Surprisingly, prosecutors chose not to call any witnesses during the penalty phase, believing that the testimony presented during the trial would suffice to secure a death sentence. During the closing arguments, District Attorney Penn challenged the notion that Lynn had been a good person throughout her life, stating, well, somewhere, ladies and gentlemen, she got off track because at some point she was no longer good. In response, Defense Attorney Barry urged the jury that if they had any lingering doubts about Lynn's guilt, they should opt for a life sentence in prison rather than the death penalty. He closed with a heartfelt plea, stating, You now hold Lynn Turner's life in your hands, and I pray to God that you will use that power wisely. Ultimately, the jury sided with the defense after deliberating for five hours, sentencing Lynn Turner to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In Georgia, in cases where the state seeks the death penalty, the jury's sentence is final. On August 30, 2010, Lynn Turner was discovered dead in her cell at Metro State Prison despite the diligent efforts of medical personnel, she could not be revived. Just one day prior, her mother and her two children, aged 12 and 14, had visited her in prison. Helen, her mother, recalled that Lynn appeared physically well, but she expressed concern for her daughter's safety. Lynn was incarcerated in a shared cell with several other inmates, and before parting, she confided in her mother, Mama, those girls are going to get me. I just know they will. Ironically, the autopsy conducted on Lynn's body could not pinpoint the exact cause of her death, but it ruled out foul play. Subsequent toxicology tests revealed that Lynn had taken her own life by overdosing on her prescription blood medication. Kathy Turner, Glenn's mother, reflected on Lynn's death, saying, I think she just didn't have anything to live for. It comes around, doesn't it? This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening and please... Be safe.